I just wanted to say that uh, you know, I wrote in the chat that tonight is uh, my mother's yard site. 21 years and Debbie's mother also. So Ethel Batrayim, dear mother, 21 years. And uh, so our learning should be Lilunishmata, kind of started the this year, you know, around the time that my father passed away. And now it's, you know, so it's it's double. It's double. And I'm thinking of her now. Anyway, um, it's uh, good to see you guys, and without further ado, let's go. Um, um, Parak Yud. Parak Yud is, no, let, let, let's go backwards a little bit, okay? Parak Yud is kind of a turning point in Sefer Shoftim. It's a turning point, because Sefer Shoftim has this sort of arch of it goes up you know we have uh the first set of our leaders that are you know the, in this, the different cycles of shoftim and they're all like really really um great leaders and there are great victories and you know miracles happen and all kinds of great stuff but there is a sort of gradual downward spiral in Sefer Shoftim. And we saw chapter nine, the story of Abimelech, that things could go radically off. Um, so Abimelech, chapter nine, Abimelech is the son of Gidon, uh, by his concubine, who was probably not Jewish, which makes uh, Abimelech a a type of figure like Herod, like um, a half Jew who rules over the Jews. I think he's a very, very evil person. So chapter nine is sort of, a, you know, a kind of horrible story in the middle of, you know, the cycle of dramatically good stories. So let me just screen share so we can look inside. So, I think I closed it up, which is a shame. I think I did. Okay, so I, I'm not going to work for it now. But basically, we talked a lot about the, the cycle of the Shoftim, and the cycle of the Shoftim is the B'nai Israel sin, which is usually Avodah idol worship. And then God gets angry at them, gives them over to the enemies. And then they dive into Hashem, they're oppressed. And then Hashem sends a judge to save them. So we have seen this cycle, okay, for those of you who are new to this learning, we have seen the cycle of Sefer Shoftim play out um, first with Atniel. We don't get a lot of information about Atniel, but Atniel is a great Torah scholar. 
and he judges the Jewish people and he helps them. And then we have the cycle with Ehud, similar thing, the children of Israel sin, God gives them over to Moab, and then they cry out to God, and Hashem sends a savior, that's Ehud. Ehud is a very brave warrior, and he saves them from Moab, and then they have, actually after Utniel, they have uh, peace for 40 years, and after Ehud, they have peace for 80 years, and then we meet Deboer and Barak, and then we meet Gidon, and in each one of these cases, we have this situation. So the Dat Mikra has a, a discussion of chapter 10, where chapter 10 is kind of a transition. Up until now, we've had a fairly straightforward situation of the cycle playing itself out. And we've had the stories of these uh, amazing different judges. And now we're going to be leading into um, the next two major judges who are not actually the, uh, the great superstars that the first few are. Okay, we have uh, upcoming up in chapter 11, Yiftach, um, who is, he's always considered one of the lesser judges, and Shimshon, who is just, you know, he's just so out of the box. We don't even know where to put Shimshon. But we're heading into like the darker half of Sefer Shoftim, and the two stories at the end of Shoftim, which are uh, so, you know, disturbing at certain points, but there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of stuff to learn, there's a lot of interest here, but basically chapter 10 is transitioning to a new sort of uh, stage in the time of the Shoftim, and we start off with, if you take a look, I like to first break up the Perak, so if you look at this formulation, you'll see the first couple of sukkim are telling us about a judge named Tola ben Pua, Rabbi Sachar. The next three sukkim about Ya'ir Hagiladi. And then we have from Pasuk Bav to Yud, this is a shorter parak. And also I'll, I'll include the whole thing, this section and, and Yud Aleph to Tetzayin. And that's sort of, um, an interaction between Jewish people and a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and a, there's a certain turning point here in Jewish history. And the Israel do this, and Hashem says this, we'll look at that interaction. And then the last two psukim are sort of the introduction to the story of Yiftah. Now, later on in chapter 12, Herkid Bet, we also have three, I'm not mistaken, three shorter judges. So the, the question is, if we start off this parak here, I like this, where is it here? Here, our nice and colorful text. We, we're, we're seeing in chapter 10, two very brief discussions of judges. And in chapter 12, we're gonna see three more. And the question is like, what, what is the deal here? Like we, you know, we get, Tola gets Tupsukim, uh, Yair gets three, and what's going on? So generally, in order to understand this, the, the Das Mikra, I think, has a very realistic approach. And he says that the, the book of Shoftim is actually a chronological, historical work. And so in order to keep that 
I don't know, I'm starting to think in Hebrew, the retzef, the, the, the continuation of the stories to keep them going in that the direction, we have to put in where there are other shofts. And even though the stories of these shofts are less dramatic and they say less, in general, in general, the, the book of Shoftim, and I think it's true in, in all the Tanakh, when you have certain stories that are played up, look at the Chumash, like we don't have to go much further back than Chayisara, where we have this long and drawn out conversation uh, of Eliezer. And again, we go through this again, whenever we have something that's uh, emphasized and given a lot of space, we're supposed to be taking notice. So it would be, a pretty safe bet to say that the judges that get a lot of play, you know, uh, Gidon gets three chapters, Devoa gets two chapters, the ones that have more stories have more significance for the generations, for us, for posterity. We have a lot of lessons to learn from them. The other judges also have their careers, and we can learn things from them, but it's less it's less um, obvious and it's, it gets a lot of less time. So that's a sort of discussion of this idea. Um, it's also good to, to bear in mind, and I think it's an overarching theme here and definitely our first life lesson that every one of these judges is a different type. And let's say Asnael is this big Tamahacham Devar is a Nevi'ah, she's a prophetess. Ginon is, a, you know, a Baal Tshuva. He's very hesitant at first. He goes into his role. We have different types. And what, what's the overarching theme here? Hashem is running the show. Every one of these judges is handpicked for their job. And it's important to understand they're also handpicked for their generation. So their generation you know, if you have a more righteous generation, you're gonna have a more righteous leader. This is actually a little bit of a depressing thought. <laughs> Every generation gets the leaders it deserves. Now the Gemara talks about um, Yiftach and Shmuel and says, Yiftach Bedoro uh, Kishmuel Bedoro. Yiftach in his generation, we haven't met him yet. I, I'm not sure how well you like him, but Yiftach in his generation is like Shmuel in his generation. Shmuel is right up there in Tehillim 99 with Moshe and Aaron. He's one of the greatest Jewish leaders ever. So the Gemara is telling us something very important. Just as Yiftach was a great leader in his generation, I mean, just as Shmuel was a great leader in his generation, so Yiftach was the great leader of his generation. We, we don't really have a choice. We kind of have to take what we get. And that's actually uh, interesting meditation. But we have to remember that each one of the judges is this by Yakem Hashem Moshiach. God raises them up. God puts the person, the right person at the right time. And that's um, a first thing that we have to understand. Hashem is running this show. Pasigala. By Yakem Acherea Bimelech Loshiach Yisrael, Tola Ben Pua Ben Dojo, Ishi Sachar, Bahu Yashi Bishamir Bahar Ephraim. Now, Tola. Tola ben Pua, these are, these are uh, very much Yisachar names, if you look in the Chumash. These are cl classic names. There are people, you see, Nitsudas right away says, and, and Rashi, that Ben Dodo is his name. His name was Dodo. Um, could be worse. <laughs> we could have had a worse name, but okay. 
Um, Dojo actually means his uncle. So there are people who suggest that it might mean his uncle, but it's, it doesn't really make sense because if we be referring that it would be referring to Abimelech, Abimelech's uncle, and then we have a tribe mess up because Abimelech, um, if he has any tribal affiliation, would be Menashe because Gidon was Menashe and Tola is clearly uh, Yisachar. So there you go. The interesting thing in Pasuk Aleph is, it, and there rose up after Abimelech to save Israel. So we have a, an interesting um, debate here. I'll show you. Radak. Radak says, also Abimelech saved Israel. It doesn't actually say so, but because it says after Abimelech wrote, rose up to save Israel, um, so then it means Abimelech did some saving. Meantime, the Malbim, the Malbim says, Abimelech didn't save Israel. He just dominated them and bossed them around and he was a tyrant. This is very interesting. I find this very interesting, the absolute opposite. So that would mean that Radak is basically saying, after Abimelech, right? who saved Israel, also Tola saved Israel. And the Malvin is saying, no. After Abimelech, who did not save Israel, then came Tola and he actually saved Israel. Okay, so that's an interesting debate. Classic bet. My take on Pasuk Aleph is that Abimelech did not save Israel. I, I, I have to say that I agree with the Malvin here. Katonti, what do I know? But it's hard to disagree with the Radak, but it, it's hard to imagine that Abimelech did anything good in his life. He was a completely negative character. And then we have to ask ourselves, what did Tola do to save Israel? We don't know. Again, the, the Nabi is de-emphasizing the story and there could have been some wars and battles that he said, we don't know. We're just getting the facts, okay? So Pasuk Bet, he judged Israel for 23 years and he died and was buried in Shamir, which is not Ephraim, which is, um, a little bit south of the territory of Yisachar. So the question is, right, what's, what's the story here? What are we learning here? Let's take a look at Yair and then we'll try to put that together. Pasuk So if you're counting 23 and 22, we're talking about 45 years here of judges whose time seemed fairly straightforward. There's not you know, so much going on there. So that's actually, um, it's actually an interesting thing to think about that. So there are different, different theories about these, about these different um, short judges. One of them is that um, they, they each had a different um, role. And one of the things that we're supposed to learn is what was going on during the times when the Jewish people were not in the midst of the, you know, the great drama. So you could see here that there were times that were fairly, Yair seems to have been a fairly quiet time. And that's also a positive thing. So we, we could see that there were things that were going right here. Now, what do we know about Yair, Pasik Dalit? Shloshim Banim, Rafim Shloshim Ayarim, Shloshim Ayarim Lahem, 
This is very interesting, and there's a little bit of a play on words here. He had 30 sons. Okay, he's still not getting up to our massive record of, you know, with the 70 sons. Okay, but it's honestly, he's not a slouch. 30 sons, and they wrote on 30 ayarim. Now, an ayar is a donkey, a young donkey, like a donkey colt. And they had 30 ayarot. Okay, it says ayarim, but ayara is a town. So each one of his 30 sons rode proudly on a young donkey and was in charge of a different town. Rashi says that there are towns, I believe he says there are towns without a wall. Without a wall. And that's why they're called ayarim. That is the same as ayarot. So we have a little play on words, and there you have this idea. So what, what are we being told here about Yair's children? There's a great um, wealth here. There's a great um, status. There's a whole thing going on. They have their, you know, they ride around like this. So we're being told this is a peaceful time. This is a time where people are um, uh, busy with, their, their, their leaders, they're giving them honor. Now it's interesting, let me just show you the map, put a map here. Okay, so just understand what we're talking about. So here's the, here's the Dead Sea and we're on the East Bank here for Yair. Tola, Tola ben Pua is Yisachar. So this is Yisachar, if you can see, I, I don't know if my pointer comes out in the, share, in the screen share. So Tola's up here. And that's the uh, 23 years, and there might have been some difficulties there. He's buried uh, in Har, Har Ephraim, which is further south. That's an interesting thing. Okay, now, when we move over to Yair, Yair is in Gilad. Now, in order to understand the two and a half tribes that live on the East Bank, go down, we go down to the bottom of the Dead Sea, right? right here is Moab, okay? This territory is taken over by Ruvain and going up by God. And the northern part of the East Bank is taken over by the half tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh was a huge tribe. Now, if you take a look over here, this area, it's called Bashan in biblical times. Today it's called the Golan Heights, the east of the Kinneret. And that was the biblical Chavot Yair, Shabbat Bashan. And here we have Chavot Yair, Shabbat Gilad. That is that the, the original Chavot Yair was in the time of the Chumash, when the Jews took over the, the two and a half tribes, I mean, the territory of the two and a half tribes. They were taken over from Sichon, who was in the south, and Og, who was up north in the Bashan. And those tribes, right, took over the land. So that the children of Menashe, the original Yair was a son of Menashe. It's hard to imagine that this is the same Yair because Rajak points out that he might, we would have been about 300 years old. So it doesn't make sense, but it, the, you do see tribal names. So this is, a, this is a Menashe name, Yair. And the same Yair who has so many towns, the children have so many towns. So they call them at the name of the biblical uh, towns of Yair, Chavot Yair. Chava, Chava is like a farm. So for those of you who are up on Israeli nursery rhymes, you know, La Don Moshe Haya Chava, 
this sounds familiar. Chava is a farm, and that's how they sing their old McDonald. It's actually very funny. Raising kids in Israel gives you some very funny insights, okay? So Chavo Yair is the towns of Yair, and he was given this great respect and this great honor because of his wealth. So there is a theory, I forget the name of the rabbi who's talking about this, that Gidon, Gidon with his 70 sons, and Yair with his 30 sons, and later on we'll see Ibsen with 60 sons, you'll see, no, I think it's 60 children. 30 sons and 30 daughters, I'm not mistaken, but okay. Um, but you have these huge families and it seems as if they're kind of setting themselves up for leadership. And so they're trying, it seems like they might be trying to set up a pattern where there might be some kind of dynastic thing going on. It's not actually going to work out. Dynasty is not going to work out. Gidon had the best shot and it didn't work out. But it's an interesting thought. It's an interesting thought. But anyway, we move on from Yair. Where are we? Okay. Notice, if you will, the Ralbag here. It's a little, a lot. It's important to know this. The Ralbag at the end of every section goes through a long list of his life lessons that he learns from that section. And that's what you're seeing right here. Okay, I will probably refer to some of that as we go along. Okay, Now, if you look at that map, Kamon, they theorize is over here. And this is all the area of Gilad. Okay, now let's, let's, uh, let's take a look at the geography for a minute. The next major enemy that's going to be coming up is Amon. All right, and Amon wants to take over the Gilad, which is this beautiful area here on the East Bank going up towards the Bashan, toward the Golan Heights. And that's what Amon has their eyes on. And the other enemy that's going to be part of this story is the Philistines, the Plishtim. And the Plishtim are over here on the coast. Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, Aza, Gat, and Ekron. That's going to be the Plishtim territory. So the Ammonites on the east and the Plishtim on the west those are going to be the two major enemies going forward from chapter 10 all the way through to chapter 16. And we're going to hear a lot about them. Okay, so this, we finished the story of these two judges, and now we're moving along in time, like 45 years have passed. So, uh, and we start our cycle again. A very, very packed up Pasuk. What's happening here? The children of Israel continue to do evil in the eyes of God. In other words, the leadership of Gidon and the tyranny of Abimelech have not resulted in a great tshuva movement as we saw after Deborah, and they're still with the idol worship. Now let's count how many different kinds of idols they're serving, okay? The Baal, that's one. Ashtoret, two. Gods of Aram, three. Tzido, four. Moab, five. B'nai Ammon, six. And Plishtim, seven. Pay attention to the numbers. Seven types of idol worship, okay? 
And they abandon God and they don't serve him. So first of all, let's just talk about idol worship for a little bit. The Baal were like, if you, if you Google it, if you really want to Google it, you can Google Baal, and you'll see all these little figurines, the sort of reminiscent of Greek heroes. The Baal would be like a sort of, you know, god of war type of thing. The Ashtoreth was the feminine side. So whereas the Baal would be where they, you know, uh, would be the god of war or of rain or these things like that, and Ashtoreth would be the, the gods of the, you know, domestic things, fertility and, and, and uh, crops. But sort of this is the way it played out. And there was also the Asherah tree, which isn't mentioned here, the tree worship. I, I wanted, to, I didn't get a chance to uh, uh, put up some pictures for you, but okay. And then you have the different uh, idols of all the nations that are around them, which is actually a very interesting discussion. So we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But the first thing we looked at, they abandoned God and they didn't serve him, right? So what does that mean? The Chazal ask, why are we repeating ourselves? If they abandoned God, of course they didn't serve him, right? So Rashi says, uh, uh, first he points out the number, Sheva Abadot Zavot. And then he says, they abandoned Hashem. The old, old Mepharshim pretty much are Pechad, everybody agrees. It means that he didn't do it together. So how, how did this work? So if you go back in your mind to the story of the golden calf, which is where we see the development of the idol worship you know, thought, they originally wanted to connect to God through an intermediary. So Moshe disappeared and this freaked them out. So they wanted some kind of something to get them connected to God the way Moshe connected them to God. Obviously it's very misplaced and they ended up worshiping that idol itself. So the, the, the Kufa of the Shoftim, the, the time of the Shoftim has this also the same kind of weird situation where the, the Jewish people were, I guess they're kind of hedging their bets. You know, we, we're gonna serve God and while we're at it, we'll also serve the idol and this is work and that, and whatever works, you know, it's like, why not? That was a sort of attitude, you know, if you, if you believe in God and you still have all these superstitious things, you have your, your lucky charm or your, you know, your, your favorite little ritual that you do, like people do this sort of thing all the time and until today. And they say, well, you know, they believe in God, but they also believe in, I don't know, you know, luck and charms and different things and, you know, bits and pieces of other religions. So that kind of thing we're going to see in chapter 17 with the idol of Micha. It's extremely clear that we're dealing with a very confused situation where Micha makes himself a temple to an idol and he thanks God for helping him make the temple for the idol, which is like, yeah, very confused. These people are very confused. So what Rashi is saying here, at this point in time, they left Hashem completely. They just went off to the idols. And an interesting question um, arises. If you take a look, who are the two big oppressors that are coming up? You mentioned Amon and Plishtim. If Amon and Plishtim are your oppressors, why are you serving their gods? an interesting question. 
What's the deal with Jews anyway? If you think about this, this actually is not so strange. It's not so strange because the Jewish people, the Jewish people always tried to integrate into the nations around them. They always want to be loved by their neighbors. And if you if you think about it, it's not such a strange thing. If you, you know, especially those of us who grew up in the States, and you see, you know, Jews who are disconnected from, you know, their Jewish roots, and they they connect themselves to, you know, the, the nations that are around them. And unfortunately, and we've seen this again and again throughout Jewish history, the nation's not interested. At some point, right, at some point they're gonna turn around and say, hey, we're not really interested in you. You're you're just a Jew. So the, the Jews in Germany, you know, I think a lot about the Holocaust at the time of my my mother's yard site because my mother was a survivor. I mean, she didn't she didn't go to the camps, I thank God, but um, she was under the Nazis for over a year as a child, and they did run away. My grandmother was killed in Auschwitz, and there were so many stories that I could tell you, like people who totally, I mean, yeah, my grandparents were trying to get out after, you know, Hitler Machimo came into Austria, but you had this, these many, many Jews in Europe, which certainly started in Germany, the German Jews felt that they were German, even the religious ones. And um, it's very, very disturbing. I heard a very interesting story, which I'll take a minute and tell you here. Um, this was um, Rabbi Kimchi. Rabbi Kimchi was sitting shiva for his mother. And he told us that his mother was 18 years old at the time of Kristallnacht. That was uh, November 38, right? Right? So she was 18. And she was visiting an, uh, an older woman, a friend of hers, and the Nazis came into this woman's house and they threw all of her stuff out the window, like um, her piano and her furniture. They threw stuff out the window. They broke everything in the house and they ripped all the linens. And she, they were like, you know, cowering in the kitchen, this girl and this woman. And she ran home to her parents and she said, we have to leave Germany now. And, um, and this is a from girl from a from home. And she said, like, those were not low-class people that came to her house. They were, you know, lawyers, doctors, accountants with hatred in their eyes. We're there's, no, there's no future for us. You have to leave Germany now. This was, I think, in the city of Worms, if I'm not mistaken, where Rashi came from. And her family just said, you know, it's not, it's not really true. It's just a, you know, it's, a, it's just an incident. It's going to be fine. Like her, her father had been in the in the First World War, you know, fighting for Germany, and he just like could not see that. And they had big fights about it. And eventually, she picked herself up and left for England. And she was the only survivor of her family. Rabbi Kimchi told us this story, and um, I was like kind of horrified. And the only consolation I could find for myself was that. 
her parents must have been, you know, at the end, very happy that she had left. But that that confusion of like, who, who are we? That was also from Jews. So from Jews were sitting there in Germany saying, no, it's not really like that. We're really good Germans. And the Germans were like, no, you're just Jews. And, and it's very disturbing to see this, this kind of thing, even back in the times of the Tanakh, why are you serving the idols of nations that are oppressing you? And the really, the sad thing is that, that Kaddish Baruch Hu looks at this and says, what's going on? Why, why have you done this? And we now break up, we had the cycles in the previous chapters that were very, very quick. They left God, they, they, uh, they were punished, God said, you know, they, they cried out to God, they had a savior. Now we have like a whole discussion between the Jewish people and God about this, this story. Look at this closely. There are seven types of Odazara going on here. And this statement that they left God and they didn't serve him, even as an intermediary. And we, we, we see God getting very angry, plus Zion. And Hashem was very angry with Israel, and he sold them in the hands of the Philistines in the hand of Neamo. So this serves as an introduction to chapters 11 and 12, which are about Yiftah, and 13 through 16, which are about Shimshon. Yiftah was fighting the uh, Bnei Amon, and Shimshon was fighting the Plishtim. And God sold them. Now, back in chapter two, we saw the distinction between when it says God gave the Jews and God sold the Jews. And the Malbim explains that if you have an object and you give it to a friend, you still have a certain interest in the object. Like it's a present. So you want to know if they're using it and if they like it. If you sell something, it's gone, period, goodbye. So the language of God giving the Jews over was a lesser punishment than selling them. Selling them implies, I'm done with you. I've had enough. Okay, Pasuket. And these persecution begins. We have this in Az Yashir, Yemin Hashem. Striking them, breaking them. And by is to smash the smithereens, right? The best of snakes smash his head. Lovely. Okay, so this is not a nice situation. And it happened in that year, which probably refers to the year that Yair died. That year, and 18 years. So this is a very long subjugation, 18 years. And the, the Mitsuda says here, Shmona Esrei Shana Hitzimina Dabar. 18 years. It wasn't like it started slow. You know, you started with a few decrees and a few taxes. It was full on. Uh, enslavement and oppression for 18 years straight. And it makes you wonder, right, what's going on? Why don't Jews cry out at this point? But here you see that what's going on, and back to our map, this is all the Jews, they're oppressing the Jews on the East Bank, 
So Amun is oppressing the Jews here. Now it escalates. Okay, Pasuk Ted. Then they say, well, you know, we're doing great over here and let's move on. So they cross the Jordan, that is Amon. They come to Yehuda, which is here, Binyamin and Ephraim, and they begin to oppress the Jews in central Israel, in the West Bank, excuse the expression. But Tetzel Yisrael Ma'od, they were very, very distressed. The word Tetzel comes from the root tsar. I know that everybody always remembers the, the Rabbi Nachman song, Kala Olam Kulo Geshet Tsar Ma'od. Tsar means narrow. So when a person feels that they're in a narrow spot, in a tight spot, that is when they feel distressed. That's when they're in trouble. And that becomes Tsarot. Right, but if you make it yeshivish, you squish the word. You say they have tsaros. Okay, so they're in a very bad position. Eighteen years of oppression, and what are they going to do? Pasuk yud. So the Jewish people come back to HaKadosh Baruch Hu after 18 years. And that's, that in itself is what we call, you know, in, in Tanakh speak, Zeomer Darsheni. How could it be that for 18 years, they are putting up with this oppression and only after 18 years, do they come to God and say, like, we're sorry, God, we sinned. And they're crying out to God. Now it's, it's really, um, if you, if you examine this pasuk, pasuk Yud, carefully, you'll say they're crying out to God. That is a feature of all the cycles. And that's what we call davening, the tefillah element. But when they say, we have sinned to you, that is an element of a much greater thing, which is tshuva. And tshuva has stages. But the first stage is to say, I have sinned. That's the vidri stage. So this is already a, a great madrega where they're coming to God and saying, we have sinned to you. And But the second path of the Pesach is three. What does that actually mean? What's the v'chi there? And that's not so clear. Right? <clears throat> Is that a statement? Is that a question? So Rashi says, right? Oh, Rashi's not here. Rashi Mitsudas. We, we left Hashem and we served the Baalim. We did two, two sins here, right? But the question is, is, is this the Chiyazabnu, right? Are we really? Did we really leave you? Let's see how it says here. Okay. Okay. And this is the Malbim on this. They thought that even though they served the Baal, they didn't abandon God. Because the Baal was just an intermediary between them and God. And they're really saying, 
a, it's a question. It's a very interesting Malbim. Even though we sinned with all that, did we abandon you? Did we serve only idols? They're saying we thought the Baal was a, a, a connection between us and God, which is very interesting because one of the things we saw before is that they, it, it actually says in Pasuk Bab, they used to abandon God and they didn't serve him. So now you're saying, we didn't really abandon you. But of course, this is, you know, this is playing defense. We didn't really abandon God. We didn't really mean anything. We, we were just using the idols as an intermediary. So one of the things you have to learn here is that we don't need intermediaries. This is definitely a lesson for us. And one of the great things about Judaism, we have that great ability to talk to God any time of the day or night. We don't need any intermediaries. We can talk to God all day long if we like. We don't need that. We don't need that. So the whole idea of the intermediary is a fallacy. We don't need that. That's not Judaism, right? We have, we have the other fallacy that we mentioned, the, the thought that we have to try to ingratiate ourselves with our neighbors by doing like they do, right? right? We're not supposed to be like our neighbors. We're supposed to be the guiding light to the world. I'm Segula. We're supposed to show other people the way. And we also do not need intermediaries. And these are lessons about our, our faith that are very basic. And they're coming to God and saying, we sinned, but we didn't really mean it. We really just, we still, can, you know, we still count on you, God. And we didn't really serve the Baals. But Hashem is not having any of it. And all of a sudden, we get a very harsh reaction from Hashem. Pasuk God now counts, now count again. Mitzrayim, that's one. Emori, that's two. B'nei Amon, that's three. Pushtim is four. Tzidonim is five. Amalek is six. Ma'on, which is some nation, but we're not sure where that is, that's seven. So the Dasmikra theorizes that there's some of the nomads in the southeast. But God is saying there are seven nations who oppressed you. Right? They pressured you. But you cried out to me. And I saved you. So we have this sort of correlation of the seven types of idol worship, the seven types of salvation. And Hashem is saying, listen, you know, we've been through this before, guys. How many times do I have to go through this with you? You sinned, I forgave you, I saved you every time, seven times. Enough. Prosecute Gimel. You left me. You're coming to me now, I should help you. You left me. You don't tell me you serve me together with, I don't buy that. You served other gods, you left me. God says, I'm not going to save you anymore. God's reaction is sharp here and very harsh. You've got all your, your good little, you know, your little Buddhas there. Go in there, go dive into them. And he, this is a, 
you know, it's a watershed. Like Kaddish Baruch Hu has been so gracious time after time in the time of the judges, the Jews sin and, and God tries to get them back on the track with their enemies and they, they come back to God and then just go back again and back again and back again. And finally God says, you know, enough, I'm done. I don't know for your stick. Go cry to your idols and leave me alone. I'm not saving you anymore. Now, this is something, of course, that's very difficult. And Jews like, what? It's not what they expected. I don't, they actually, these are, um, I should point out that the, the Mepharshim say that this is um, by way of a Nabi, this, this information. I just want to show you. Uh, <clears throat> okay, on the next part, I'll get to it. <clears throat> the Ralbag here, I'm jumping ahead a little bit into the Ralbag on Tetzayin. Right? <coughs> right. The Torah speaks in the language of people. This is what we call anthropomorphism. We just give God, like God is angry and God is fed up and all these things that we're going to talk about, right? It says, it's as if, right? God, God wants to save them after so many times he saves them and they're returning to the rebellion like a dog going back to its vomit. It's a very, very strong language. And um, this, is, this is the Ralbag saying, well, God is, God is, you know, why should I keep saving you? So the Jewish people come back to God with a, you know, a heartfelt plea. They're going back on their vidui. They say, no, no, we sin, right? Asay atalanu. God, we, we accept the fact that you're mad at us. We accept the fact that we sin. We understand that you want to punish us, but you, you do whatever you think is right, but save us today. Save us from the enemies. And you have this picture, right? And, and the, the, the comparison here it begs to be drawn between this story and the story of David in at the end of Shmuel Bet, yeah, at the end of Shmuel Bet, there's a plague. And um, Hashem says to David, I'm, I'm uh, going to, through the prophet God, and he says, I'm going to punish you and you have a choice, you know. You're going to have, a, you know, an army against you or you're going to have uh, I forget the details of pestilence, or you're going to have the plague, uh, whatever the three choices were. And David's response is very interesting. And he says, he says, David al God, right? Right? Let us fall into the hands of God, right? And not into the hands of man, because God's mercy is greater. This is something that a Pasuk that we say, well, we don't say it so much, but men say it in the Tachanun. And uh, if you say Slichas, you've seen it in there. And the, it's a very interesting idea because what we're saying is that, and the Jews are saying it here, Hashem, you know, we want you to deal with us. We don't want to deal with our enemies. And it's a very, very great lesson for us. The mercy of a Kaddish Baruch who is infinite people cannot be counted on. 
sometimes God gives a nation, let's say the Egyptians or the Germans that we're talking about, he gives them the mandate to punish the Jews and they go just overboard. There were many things that the Egyptians did to Jewish people that wasn't part of the slavery. And so the, the cruelty of people cannot be calculated. So the people say, no, Hashem, whatever you're gonna do to us, it's gonna be better than the people. This is what David says. Your, your mercy is great. Let, let's go, we'll, we'll, we'll ask you to save us. And they continue to try to get God to forgive them by actually doing the other elements of tshuva, right? They remove the idols from their midst. So here you have, if we're going along with the stages of tshuva, we said chatanu they remove the idol worship. They have charata, they have regret, they have uh, abandoning the sin, right? And they want to like and they serve God. And the response, and this is one of the most famous phrases actually in Sefer Shoftim, and the most difficult, but and God's response is that literally this means God's soul was shortened by the trouble of Israel. It's very, very difficult to interpret this, right? What actually does that mean? What does it mean? And we have to, we have to look at the, the mainstream opinion. There are different opinions. The mainstream opinion, the most from agree, is that this is some form of, where do we see the expression of tiktar nafsho? We see this when the Jewish people, when Moshe comes first to Paro, back in Sefer Shavos, and he says, you know, let my people go, and God, and, and Paro says, you think? And he gives them more work. And, and, and Moshe says, well, God is going to save you. And they couldn't hear him, right? Because they had kotzer ruach. Kotzer ruach and avodah And kotzer ruach is similar to kotzer nefesh. That means a shortening of your spirit and of your soul. And, you know, I think that the, the correct English translation is fed up. Just, just don't have, Rashi explained this, I have no more space for this pain. I can't deal with this pain anymore. So the question is, when you say that Amal Yisrael, Amal can mean many things. It can mean labor. It can mean distress. So we're saying that God's soul, literally this means God's soul is shortened by the trouble of Israel. And we don't, we don't really know what to do with this phrase. So the Mepharshim go in the direction of God can't bear the pain of the Jewish people anymore. And he has to save them. Again, we all, always have to understand that the Torah speaks in the language of people. We don't know what it means to say that God you know, has no more uh, patience for something or that God is angry. All these expressions are just ways for us to understand the dynamic. But really, Akadosh Baruch Hu is just, he looks at their tshuva, and he sees, and he loves Jewish people, and his rachamim is infinite, and he says, like, I can't have them suffer anymore. Now, it's interesting, the Rabag is a minority opinion. You know, the Rabag says, Hashem is fed up with the Jewish people, with all of their, he's weary, he's tired of their, you know, endless cycles of sin. So the Ralbach's conclusion 
is that Hashem says, I'm not, I'm not saving you anymore. There's not going to be any big victories anymore. And it would seem that from what comes after this Perek, that the great victories of Gidon, you know, 300 men, or Devorah against all the chariots, those great victories, God is not, gonna, is not up for that anymore. The Jewish people do not deserve that anymore. But the He's not going to leave us alone because he's, he's looking at the, the Jewish people trying to do tshuva to the best of their ability, and he sees their suffering. And Hashem's rachamim is infinite, and that's one of the most important lessons of this parak. Hashem's rachamim is infinite. Never give up. Throw yourself on Hashem's mercy because it's always there. And the Bible, like I said, is, is a minority opinion. So there we have that strange phrase. It sounds like Hashem cannot bear the Jewish people suffering at a certain point, and he has to help us. The last two psukim of the parak, Yitzayin are really the lead-ins to chapter 11 of Yiftach. Pasuk Yitzayin, Vayitzaku b'nei Amon, Vayachanu b'gilad, Vayayasfu b'nei Yisrael, Vayachanu b'mitzvah. So if you take a look here at the map here, they gather at Gilad, the children of Amon. So here already, the text is leading us, um, you know, it's not stated, but before, if we go back in the Psukim, we saw, right, in Pasuk Tet, the Bnei Amon crossed the Jordan to fight with Yehuda, Binyam, and Ephraim, and Israel was suffering from that so much. And now, we're saying that Amon is, is massing in Gilad to attack the Jews. So what happened to them being on the West Bank in Binyamin Ephraim and Yehuda? So it seems that when it says that God's, God did not want them to suffer anymore, that what happens here is that they're in, in, encroaching into the West Bank has been repelled, and now they're still, they're only on the East Bank. And that is a great saving in and of itself. You still have to deal with the fact of the, you know, attack of Amon, but they're not in the entire West Bank, which they had been before. So that's a beginning of a salvation. Okay, so go back to this Pasuk. It's um, Ayat. They are camped in Gilad, and the Jewish people are camped in Mitzvah, and we're getting ready for an actual battle. And the, the officers of Gilad <coughs> said, each man to his friend, right? Who is the man that will begin to fight the sons of Ammon? He will be the head of all the dwellers of Gilad, right? And Suda says, let's find out who is this person who can do this. So what they were actually doing is they are um, effectively, they, these are the leaders, the leaders of, and this is probably in the Menasha territory, because Gilad is Menasha. And they say, we need a leader. We need a warrior, and they're all their leaders, but they are willing to waive their claims to leadership. If we can find our 
leader who will lead us out and fight against the children of Ammon. And this is a kind of interesting sort of cliffhanger, which is, it's, it's interesting because we're going to meet the leader that they are looking for in chapter 11. So we have this sort of lead in and, you know, leave you hanging there next, like who is going to be the person who will save us and uh, we will meet him in the next chapter. So, um, okay, I'm going to stop the screen share. Okay. Um, so you could unmute yourselves. Anyone have any questions? It's really depressing. It's depressing? It's so sad. Like those, they got it so wrong. What hope do we have? Hmm. The matter is that like we, we do need strong leadership. And one of the one of the main messages of Sefer Shoftim is you know the lead in to Sefer Shmuel, when we have the great the great leader of Shmuel who's going to pull the Jewish people out of this, you know, downward spot, bring them back up, right? And it's it is, it's like it's a tough thing to read. There's some you, we're going to get some great stories, and the, the rest of Shoftim is actually fascinating. But this is definitely, you know, a turning point from like, you know, those great victories of those great heroes to like, oi, oi, these guys are like seriously flawed, seriously flawed. When you talk yeah. about the the uh, Avodazara as like, okay, we'll just kind of hedge our bets. Huh. Okay, just think about assimilated Americans who are have their Hanukkah menorah next to their Christmas tree. It's like, I'll, I'll do both. That's okay. I, I'm, I'm still Jewish. Right. This right. feels the same. It may not be a little statue, but it feels the same. Well, you know, the whole idea of a Bodhisattva is always problematic when you learn about a Bodhisattva because we don't have that Yetzirah anymore. That was taken away at the... Uh, you know, beginning of the Second Temple period. What about all the Israelis who go to the ashrams where they literally have Avodah Zarah? What about all the Americans who go there? Yeah, I mean, it's not so simple. It's true. There is literal Avodah Zarah today. The Hare Krishna, the Buddhism, this is literal Avodah Zarah, right? There's many people who say Catholicism is Avodah Zarah because of all the statues. It's it's just that that, it's, it's a different <laughs> concept. I went, a, I went to a Jesuit university. And I had, a, I had a teacher who was a lapsed Catholic. And in every room, there was a crucifix. So he, he used to keep his chalk behind the crucifix. And he'd say, if I drop it, Debbie, don't, don't reach down and get it for me. Oi. Oi. <laughs> you know, I had no experience of this. I remember... Um, uh, Debbie remembers that my father was in the hospital, oh. and it was a hospital called, hi girls, called Holy Name. So I'm so Israeli already. I saw Holy Name, I thought Holy Land. <laughs> I walk in and everywhere, everywhere were these yashkis everywhere. And there was one in my father's room and I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. So as my brothers and sisters watching me in horror, when there were no nobody looking, I grabbed it off the wall, stuck it in the drawer. 
can't do that. I, you did that. Can I just say something? I can I just say something regarding the Vodazara? Um, I think it's a very different thing, searching, soul searching, which a lot of the generation today searches because they don't feel a connection to anything because of all the madness happening around and worshiping, actually worshiping, like sacrificing your kids to some piece of whatever is very different. I don't think that the taiva that they had then we can even understand. Um, like you were saying, mommy, I think it's a very different thing. Like Buddhism, people are attracted to what it represents that, you know, Zen and organic and, you know, not being vegan and not harming anything in the universe and not getting upset. Like they're more attracted to like, to that, you know, spiritual side of it. I feel like it's a different kind of, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. You know, it's, it's um, interesting when you compare then and now. So I had a student asked me the other day in class. She said, like, I get that. I get that they were attracted to Avodazar because of all the promiscuity and the, you know, the like, you know, hedonism and all that stuff. She said, but I don't get how they could be attracted to child sacrifice because that goes against nature. How could they want to do that? So I said to her... It- it's indoctrination, and you don't have to go further, you should excuse me, than the Palestinian mothers who literally sacrificed their children on the altar of being a shaheed. They raise them and they to- to- teach them to be martyrs in the cause of killing Jews, and they celebrate when they die because they give out candies because they've done this great feed a martyrdom. So it's not so different today. If you've got the right mindset and the right indoctrination, you can do all sorts of atrocious things. And that's a very, very sad message. Very, very sad. But I, you know, she was like, she was struck by it because she said like, how could anyone want to sacrifice their children? I'm like, yeah, yeah. If you are enough of a believer, that's (laughs) a great thing for yourself and your child, then you're going to do all kinds of horrible things in the name of whatever it is. So it's it's very sad. It's very, very sad. And, you know, one of those things that strikes me always is this, when you think about the Egelazov, like I said, Egelazov and all this idolatry, the, the pull that like we need something else, that that disturbs me because if it feels like you're, you're missing out on the greatness of, of Yiddishkeit because you don't need anything else. Because you have your own private channel, you and God. You can always talk to God. Even if you're not formally dominant, you can always talk to God. You have that. You don't need an intermediary. You don't need anything else. So, like, what are you looking for there? And that's, to me, very sad. But a lot of, you know, alienated Jews are one way or another. That's where they're going. And that's where they're going. So, yeah. uh, you know. I always feel like if you if you learn Tanakh, if you look into it deeply, you realize that this, the mistakes that they made then are not so far from the mistakes that we make today in, in society in general. We, we make these compromises, we think these things, and then, you know, it, and then, well, well I, I didn't do anything so well. I don't know, we didn't really do that. So how does that really work? So we're not so different. So we have to learn from that, you know, the more you learn, you know, history and Tanakh, the more you see 
you know, which, which is the way we should be going in. And that's, uh, that's how I see it. <laughs> ah, all righty, I think 